Hi, this is Amy and Palazzari. Welcome to Tall Poppy Writers Presents I Know How This Book Ends, where we dive into the story behind the story of the biggest books out this year. Today, I'm talking with Sarah Penner. I'm thrilled to be talking with you, Sarah. Sarah is the debut author of the instant New York Times bestseller, The Lost Apothecary, just out this month. Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for being here. I've been so excited about this book. There has been so much buzz about this book for so long. I was so excited <laughs> for it to come out. Um, I have to read just a few of the accolades for this book, even before it came out. It was named one of the most anticipated reads of 2021 by Newsweek, Good Housekeeping, Reader's Digest, CNN, oh yeah, and Oprah Magazine. <laughs> it was Barnes & Noble Discover Pick, Amazon Editor's Pick, and a featured debut. It was the number one library reads pick. It was a book of the month main selection, Editor's Pick in the Historical Novel Review. This book has gotten so much buzz, and here's the exciting part. It lived up to all the buzz, and <laughs> it instantly hit the New York Times bestseller list. So before we even talk about the book, which we're going to dive into, Sarah, you have to tell me about the moment you find out that you are a New York Times bestseller. Like, take us to that moment. Gosh, yes. I actually kind of still get chills when I Aww. think about it. I was actually in the car. My husband was driving, thankfully, but a little uh, kind of secret insider information. Love it. Editors and many people in the book industry actually get about two hours advanced warning, uh, in, you know, relating to who's going to be on the list and what books are going to be on the list each week. And so yep. the list comes out at 7 p.m. Eastern on Wednesdays. And so the week after the book came out, I it was about five o'clock and I was in the car en route actually to a, a book related event. And I saw my editor calling and she had told me, you know, I get a little of advanced notice. And so I will call you, you know, prior to seven o'clock if, if you hit it. And so when she was calling at five o'clock, my heart just started racing because oh I thought gosh. this is really good. Like, and it was actually about five oh five, and so I was thinking, okay, maybe this news or the list that she gets comes out at five. And sure enough, she had just gotten the email, and so she had my agent on the line as well, and it was the three of us. And she just kind of like screamed into the phone oh. that it had debuted at number seven. So pretty Amazing. good positioning. Yeah. Uh, and that it was on both the hardcover fiction list as well as the combined ebook and print list. It had come in number 12, I believe, on that one. So my, uh, gosh, my reaction, I, I was just so relieved. I mean, you alluded to the buzz and the publicity, and that is all wonderful. Don't get me wrong. However, it's a lot of pressure because... Yeah. We've all heard horror stories about, you know, readers and reviewers saying a certain book was overhyped or overbuzzed. And I was just fearful, like, what if that yeah. is me? And what if, you know, reviews start coming in and they're not very good? And so to have, uh, to really have lived up to those expectations, I felt like not only was I thrilled because I suddenly have this, um, uh, this accolade that I can, I can forever now say that yes. I'm a New York Times bestseller and to have that, but then also to have fulfilled the hopes of my publisher and my agent, I just felt such a sense of relief. And I just yeah. kept like taking these deep breaths and, 
uh, of just gratitude and relief and elation, like every positive feeling. I love it. No, I love, I love that the admission that there is a lot of pressure, right? And you, Mm -hmm. you probably did feel fear and pressure and obviously it all worked out and, and that's wonderful. And I think it's really exciting. It's such a fresh new story. I want to just back up for a minute before we dive into the story too, and talk a little bit about your writing journey, because I, this is the first time we're meeting, which I'm thrilled to meet you. And I, but I have read a little bit about your writing journey. And I know that you have said that you were inspired by Elizabeth Gilbert, who is a muse for so many of us writers, right? And (laughs) I love her. And I would love to hear a little bit more about that. You said that you heard heard her speak and that sort of inspired you on your writing journey. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so Liz Gilbert, you know, I think everyone is probably familiar with her huge uh, bestseller, Eat, Pray, Love that came out mm-hmm. many years ago, but she wrote, gosh, this was probably five or six years ago. She wrote actually a a book for creatives, whether yes. that's writing or painting or music or what have you. And it's, it's titled big magic and it's about yes. managing fear while also creating and how to balance fear with that freedom and that instinct that really we all have to create. And she was in Wichita where I, Wichita, Kansas, where I lived at the time and it's so funny now because she is so busy. She is like impossible to even get a, I've tried to have my publisher get a, a note of thanks and gratitude to her. And I don't think we're ever going to make it happen. So it's really <laughs> a miracle that I even got to see her in person. And I realize yeah. now how special that experience was. So she was in Wichita and she was on tour for Big Magic and She, uh, let's see, at the time I had not started writing seriously. I had really only dabbled in poetry and, uh, you know, like little short pieces of fiction that never went anywhere. And I had also recently lost my dad, who I was very close to. So I was kind of in this period of my life where I think the right message delivered the right way. Mm, it was yes. it was going to be a great jumping off point for me. And I didn't know that when I walked into this room to hear her speak. But that's kind of the beauty of creativity is a lot of times things are simmering within us and it just takes that spark. And so that conversation, she looked out at the crowd and she basically said something to the effect of, what dreams do you have? What things do you want to create that you've been too scared to? And if I came back one year from now and asked you the same question, would you have taken any steps towards that? Or would you have, will you be in the exact same chair with the exact same answer that is, no, I haven't taken a step towards it. And it really kind of, it hit on a lot of things I was feeling because I was feeling how short life was. I had just lost a parent. I was feeling kind of like actually the present day character in my story. I was feeling happy with my job, but also unfulfilled with certain things in my life. And then I had, I was also kind of just ready to, to try writing more seriously and see if I could write a novel length work of fiction. So it was the right question at the right time. And I walked out of there very inspired. And within several weeks, I had enrolled in a creative writing class online and started working on my first book. Had you already read Big Magic before you walked in that room? Oh, yes. I had yeah. I had not only read it, but I had highlighted it. Yeah. I had postmarked it like I had absolutely loved it. And it's actually like right next to me on my shelf right now. And yeah. I've been thinking that I should probably crack it back open and give it another read. It is one of those books, right? I have it sitting right here 
next to me on my bookshelf as well. And when you walked into that room, if someone had asked you, are you a creative? Would you have answered that question? Yes. As you were walking in that room? Or is that something you discovered by the time you walked out? I think I would have said yes, because I'm also creative in some other ways. Uh, For example, I love needle crafts. So Ah, like knitting or cross-stitch, embroidery. I've always really enjoyed that. And I actually think, I truly believe every single person is creative Mm. in their own way. Um, And perhaps they don't realize it. So for example, uh, even cooking, I think cooking is very creative and I cook all the time. So I do think that we all have, and I've, I've studied this a lot and I talk about this a lot that we all, this kind of left, right brain theory, our left brain is very analytical and numbers based and our right, right side of our brain is more playful and imaginative. And I think whether you consider yourself a creator or not, the reality is we all have a right brain and we all (laughs) like to play and imagine. And when we dream, that's a form of subconscious creativity, so we're all creators. I think maybe we just don't realize it. Yeah. And, and that's so interesting too, because in your professional life before writing, what was your professional life? Yeah. So I have worked in finance for 13 yeah. years. So when we talk about left brain, it's yeah. the epitome of yeah. that. It's I've, I've always been very analytical. I love numbers. I'm very comfortable with data sets and math. Like my favorite subject in college, surprisingly, was not English. It was uh, algebra and yeah. <laughs> um, calculus. And so it's that's kind of wild. But I, I have been in finance for, for 13 years. I love that. We, we share something in common in that I, you know, was, I was a lawyer for many years, for 13 years before I, I embarked on a writing journey. And I, my favorite people are the ones that are able to sort of harness that right brain, left brain energy, mm-hmm. because I do think that they are not, they're not meant to be as separate as we're often taught. Right. And so I think the happiest people are the ones who can harness their creativity alongside the other portions of their brain. So I think that's really amazing. Are you still working in finance? So it's a very timely question. Oh, I, good. Uh, yeah. I've been getting this question for weeks and I have to like kind of uh, defer it it. or work my way around it. But just this morning, like three hours ago, I emailed my boss who I am very good friends with and sort of formally announced my resignation from my uh, day job, like permanently. There you go. Um, So yeah, as of today, I am officially a full-time writer, which is amazing. Like I, I'm still kind of in disbelief that I'm in a position to do this and I'm so thrilled about it. Well, let me be the first, one of the first to congratulate you. That's (laughs) really amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. So let's talk about the reason uh, that you were able to make that send that really impactful email, right? The Lost Mm -hmm. Apothecary, which is a really fresh original book. For those who who haven't heard the elevator pitch about it, I can't imagine who 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 is out there that hasn't. But it's a really interesting book about told from the points of view of three women and two timelines. Why don't you why don't you give us your elevator pitch? I don't want to I don't want to step on your toes. Sure. So for anybody who's not familiar with The Lost Apothecary, it's about a female apothecary in 18th century London who sells well-disguised poisons to women seeking vengeance on the men who have wronged them. And 200 years later in the present day, 
a woman goes mudlarking along the River Thames, and she finds a small, mysterious apothecary vial, and she suspects that she has identified the culprit in the never-solved apothecary murders that haunted London 200 years earlier. So as you just mentioned, it's dual timeline, and it actually follows three points of view. And we see these points of view kind of collide at the very end, and we we uncover how the fates of this present-day character as well as the apothecary really collide in this in this un, unexpected twist at the end of the story. So let's talk about that, right? Because as a writer, and you're, this is your first novel, so debut authors, it's always so exciting to talk to a debut author who is, I always say like you never have as much time or th- thought to put into a book as you do your first book, right? So you, you, right, you, you'll never have, you'll never have the luxury of the time you had to spend on this book. And I don't know how right. long you did spend on it, but you'll never have that luxury again, right? So <laughs> especially now, given the success of this book. And so you, you obviously though, you have to make choices whenever you sit down to write a book, you have to make choices about point of view. You have to make choices about timeline. You have to make choices about setting. And you made a really ambitious choice that obviously worked to tell the story from three points of view on two different uh, timelines. And were those the choices at the genesis of the story idea or did that, did those choices evolve? So the very first character that came to mind, of course, is the apothecary mm-hmm. in, you know, the two, 200 years ago, the historical character. She is really the core and the essence of the story. So, and her name is Nella. Her name is Nella. Yep. And she's, she's grieving. She's vengeful. She's got yeah. uh, a lot of bitterness about things that have happened in her life. But I knew that I wanted there to be a secret about her and something that really history had not uncovered, much less recorded. And so the title of the book is The Lost Apothecary. And that's important because anytime we talk about something being lost, there's the possibility that it can be found. And so that's exactly what happens 200 years later. And that brings in the natural second point of view of the story, which is the character who uncovers the mystery. So that's Caroline. She, she's in London. She's kind of having some marital difficulties and questioning life decisions. She's really the other piece of the story. And then there's this third character and it's actually quite fitting that she's, she was the last character to sort of fall into my, my brain as I was writing this. Um, and interestingly, she's a lot of people's favorite character, myself included. And so her name is Eliza and she's only 12 years old. And the reason why she came into the story is because we, this, the story really begins opening up in uh, Nella's apothecary shop. And we see this young girl, Eliza walk into the, the hidden shop behind a hidden wall and she purchases this poison that she's going to use against someone in her life. And as I wrote that chapter, I asked myself, what scene would the reader want to read next? Because I think when you're writing, you have to ask yourself that question. Like, what is the most interesting thing that I can put on the next page? Yeah. And that's part of why the book moves so quickly. And many have called it a thriller and a page turner. It's just because I really tried to infuse it with what is the most interesting thing that can happen next. And so after this young girl comes and buys this poison, I knew instinctively what the reader wants next is they want to watch this young woman use this poison against this person in her life. And they want to know why and how 
and what happens to this individual. So uh, Eliza in that way, she wasn't planned. I didn't, I didn't outline the story with her in mind, ah. but as I got to chapter four or five or so, I thought I've got to follow this girl home with this poison in her pocket and see what she does with it. Because I didn't want her using the poison to be a flashback or a conversation after the fact. I wanted it to be really visceral and present. And so that was why I decided to create her point of view. And as it turns out, and I won't give away anything here, but she is pivotal to the entire yeah. story. And I think it's really kind of sweet and just ironic that she was the last person on the scene of three because she does play such an important role. And that's so interesting. So I love that. I love that advice too, about how to write your story. Think about what comes, what interesting thing comes next. Was she always a young girl? She's, she's 12, right? When we meet her. Mm -hmm. So was she always going to be a young girl? Cause that's a really, that's a big challenge, right? Then to take on the point of view of a 12 year old girl alongside yes. these two women. Yes. It, she was always a child. Um, however, she was aged 11. And now in the story, she's 12. And that was, okay. I know that that uh, doesn't seem like a lot. It's just one year. But when you, you know, the, the whole story and her entire narrative is about her being on the brink of womanhood. And so yeah. in that way, one year between 11 and 12 does make quite the difference. I have a 13 year old daughter. I can tell you the difference between 11 and 12 is huge. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I completely understand that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's so fascinating. How, so did you write this story fairly linearly after you outlined it? So, you know, I mentioned outlining earlier and I, I do a very rough outline. Uh, yeah. It's not, I, I, it's almost more of a, like a one page premise with just yeah. the big pillars of the story and the stakes yep. and the conflict. So I, I, I really didn't outline it a whole lot. I, and people always want to know if writers are pantsers or plotters. And I always say that I am, I'm a little bit in between. I think that it's yeah. important to, to know those big pillars and you have to know, kind of obviously your who, what, when, but you have to know your stakes. Like if this person doesn't reach their story goal, what is, what are they going to lose? What's going to happen to them? I, I really didn't outline it in detail, but I, I had the big pieces there. And as for writing it literally, uh, I would say the voices of each character are so different that I actually wrote one character at a time. So I kind of wrote... Ah most of Nella's story because since she was the historical timeline and she left all these clues that the present day narrator would have to find, I felt like I needed to write that historical narrative first. So I wrote all of her story. Then I wrote all of Caroline's present day story. And then I came through and wrote Eliza's and that's during the drafting phase. But sure. once you get once you get to the revision and editing stage, you really have no choice but to kind of uh, gosh, like disassemble the entire story, forget, yeah. forget what's linear, forget what's logical. And you just kind of have to take each chapter, you know, when you need to take it. So, yeah. um, it get, you know, I, I always say about editing and revision, it gets so much worse before it gets better. And yeah. for those writers who are in the middle of revisions and they say to themselves, like, I I'm destroying the book, I'm ruining it. That means that you're on the right track. Absolutely. That's where all the magic happens, right? Yes. Yeah, for sure. The The big question, Mark, that was in my brain as I was reading this book, because I always read as a reader and a writer, is that 
I couldn't stop thinking about your Google history and the horror you must feel if somebody's going to accidentally stumble upon your computer and not know why you are researching how to kill people and disguise it with poisons, right? We're all, I I write psychological thrillers too. And my Google history is, I constantly have to clear it for fear that somebody's going to not understand what's happening. So your Google history must be absolutely fascinating. So putting aside how many times you must have had to clear it, you have to take us through the research for this book. How do you research an 18th century apothecary who really has sort of twisted her, her mother's legacy? Her mother was a healer and has twisted her mother's legacy to really become a woman who dispenses poisons to kill, but, you know, to help people kill and get away with it. How do you do that research? Yeah. So I, I've always had kind of a passing interest in medicine. I actually, you know, I've, I've told you that I've been in finance for 13 years, but actually when I first started college at the university of Kansas, I was pre-med and Ah. I, I quickly had to change course because I got a C in chemistry one, which like if you Uh, can't ace chem one, you're not going to do very well in medical school. But the point is that I've always had kind of this passing interest in physiology and how things affect the body. And similar to that, I've also got a little bit of just novice interest in gardening and essential oils. And so I realize these all seem like very disparate things. But now when I think about the book, The Lost Apothecary, and so many of those concepts, I'm realizing, I think this story, I was meant to write it all along because plants and oils and toxins and how they affect the body, like they are all so intertwined in this story. And so when it came to actually researching the book, there are, for one, there are countless guides on poisons and toxins. However, I had to keep in mind, this is from an 18th century perspective. This needs to be information 200 years old. So I can't be using modern medical terms or chemical names. I have to be looking at how, you know, what are the Latin names or how did these apothecaries in the 1700s refer to the drugs in their shop? And so what I did, this is my favorite things to do as a historical fiction writer, is go back to firsthand accounts, whether digitized or original. And that means like journals and diaries and just things that you're not reading online so much or even in a book, but you're actually looking at what that person wrote down. And so I found, this is another book on my shelf. I found this diary of this uh, male midwife who also practiced as an apothecary on the side. And I looked through his inventory logs. I looked through what drugs he was giving to his patients and how much he was charging for those kind of like a day in the life diary for him. I also, there are a number of digitized pharmacopias online and a pharmacopia is like an encyclopedia of drugs. And so I went and I looked at old pharmacopias from the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, and they're actually all still bookmarked on my computer now. But it's really, it's really fascinating to see how many resources out there have been digitized and you can access them through 
um, museums or libraries. And so that, that was really a lot of my research was I went and looked at old documents. And then I have a couple of fun contemporary books as well. So I have a book on plant toxins that, you know, kind of walks through how they affect the, the human body. And so I, I, I really used both historical and contemporary resources, but I would say it was very important to me to keep the book as accurate as possible. And so I really tried to lean primarily on the historical resources. Oh, that is so fascinating. Yeah. Well, like I said, I'm sure you had to clear your your computer history often. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because this is called I Know How This Book Ends, we always talk in a general non-spoiler way about how the book ends. And you've alluded to the fact that Eliza was a late addition to your story, but also uh, as every reader will will learn, completely pivotal, important part of the story and certainly to the ending of the story was given that she was a, a latecomer to your story, was was that always the way this story ended or did that change? So when I first began writing chapter one, for instance, I didn't know necessarily how the story was going to end. I didn't know about the big reveal and big twist that, that okay. happens, but I did know that I wanted there to be secrets about the apothecary that went undiscovered for 200 years. Yeah. And I think, I really think it's okay to not know everything that's going to happen. And I'm actually dealing with this now with my next project, I don't know every single thing that's going to happen in act three. I have some ideas, but I don't have them, you know, firm and formalized. So yeah. I think you've got to write, you know, you've got to write your story and kind of figure out your voice. And it's true what they say. I mean, it sounds, it sounds weird to people who don't write, but for those who do, and that's probably most of who's listening to this call, there's, you really kind of have this instinct that as you develop a story, you just kind of instinctually feel what can and should happen next. And you have to go with that feeling. So I'm not stressing too much. Uh, you know, anytime I start a project, if I don't know exactly how act three will unfold. And so to answer your question, because Eliza was a late addition to the story, I didn't know the important role she was going to play. Yeah. But it once I kind of was halfway through and it came to me, the idea, I was just like, this is how it's been meant to be from day one. I just had to take some time getting there. When you sold the book, did you have to have talked to writers who have had to make editorial changes to the ending of their story. Was that the case for you or did you, was this your original, the original ending when you this sold the book? This was the original ending. Yeah. There, yeah. Are, there are some refinements and yeah, of fleshing out, uh, as editors like to call, they, they like to call it unpacking. So, I mean, they, yeah. my, both my agent, who's very editorial, when she and I were working on the manuscript together, there were certain scenes towards the end where she would say, can we unpack this? Can we expand this? Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and there, you know, there are a couple of scenes at the end of the story that my agent wanted to see developed, but in terms of the big pivotal twists throughout the end of the story, those were pretty much in place. Um, you know, at, when I, when I first started querying agents and before we sold the book. That's exciting. Well, you've alluded to the fact that there is a next book. So I'd like to talk in a general way about that, but first I want to know, You've, you've talked about the sort of the pressure and the fear of the buzz about this book. Does that 
and, and it's wonderful that it has met all of the well-deserved buzz and acclaim, but does the buzz for this book affect um, how you approach your next project? Oh, 100%. Yes. So it's really like a, it's a catch 22 because you love the buzz as a debut, but then you also have heard horror stories about the sophomore slump, which is your second book. And that slump feels so much more possible once you've had a buzzy debut and you've kind of set all of these expectations. Now that said, I, for my next project, I personally think it may actually be better than The Lost Apothecary. I I could not be more excited about the premise. And I, I'm just absolutely, I have no fears about the sophomore slump because I think that the book is just going to be outstanding. And I, I don't mean that to sound like arrogant or cocky. I absolutely still have fears, you know, going into the future, but I could not be more thrilled with my second book idea. Listen, if we can't be excited and advocates for our own books, then who can be right? So you're allowed to be, you're allowed to be confident about it. And I mean, that's the goal, right? The goal is to learn from each each book. And um, when people ask me, which, which is your best book, which is your favorite book, that's two different questions, because I really don't have a favorite, but you always hope that your best book is your last book, right? Mm-hmm. The most recent book, because the goal is to keep learning and keep improving in the craft. So can you tell us anything about your sophomore book? So, um, you know, I, I can't say a whole lot, but what I can sure. say is that there are so many themes in The Lost Apothecary that I think readers will be drawn to again with not only my next project, but all, all of my future projects. And what I mean by that is I naturally as a writer am drawn to atmospheric historical settings. I'm drawn, mm-hmm. to, I'm drawn to brave, empowered women I'm drawn very much to writing cliffhangers. Uh, and I think that I, I sort of naturally am a thriller writer. And I really mm-hmm. like, I like short plot based chapters. And one yep. of my, one of my areas of improvement that my agent and editor are constantly working with me on is give me more character, give me more background, give me more emotion. And I'm like, no, I just want to write like this awesome thing that happens after they find this clue in a locked room. <laughs> uh, and so I, I naturally lean towards these historical thriller esques featuring, mm-hmm. featuring like really strong women. And so my next book, well, I can't really share much. I can say that it has all of those elements. And then it also has a little bit of a speculative element. So in The Lost Hmm. Apothecary, that was magical realism. And a lot of readers have loved this concept in The the Lost Apothecary about is it magic or is it real? And that's in fiction, you know, we call that a speculative fiction. And so my next story will have a little bit of that speculative element as well, where the reader doesn't quite know what's real and what's not. Mm. Oh, Sarah, we can't wait. I'm so excited. (laughs) Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule promoting this book to talk with us. And we're excited to keep following you. And we're excited to hear more about the next project. So thank you so much, Sarah. Well, thank you, Amy, for having me. This has been a really great conversation and I appreciate you having me on. And to everyone who's listening, I want to say thank you for tuning in. Awesome. Thank you so much. 